You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and for today's episode, we're going to explore why environment matters, more specifically, why your learning environment matters. It was a combination of the horror of watching historic buildings being destroyed and suburban malls being erected in their place and an art class that sparked what became a public exhibition piquing Randy Fielding's interest in architecture. Randy then went on to found Fielding Nair International, a global leader in designing learning communities. Interesting intersection here, Fielding Nair and our team here at Getting Smart support Microsoft Flagship Schools, which is a school development partnership and network of what will soon be some of the world's most innovative schools. Stay tuned for more on that. Recently, Randy and Tom found a quiet corner on the Microsoft campus to talk about agency and how spaces and experiences can truly help learners cultivate and develop their own agency. Let's listen in to hear about how Randy and Fielding Nair are transforming education through design. Randy Fielding, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Tom, it's wonderful to be here. Hey, we're together at the uh, Executive Briefing Center at Microsoft. We're, uh, we're meeting with uh, their flagship school, so it's been a fun two days with a group from all over the world. You've met some interesting people? Oh, yeah, from Chile, from Brazil, from Finland, Australia. It's amazing. Austria, Germany. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been really exciting. Uh, Randy, uh, where, where'd you go to high school? I went to Huntington High in Long Island, New York. Um, beautiful North Shore. Yes, yes, beautiful North Shore. Uh, spectacular part of the world. It w- was there a high school experience where you decided you'd be an architect? What's the backstory? Yeah, there were two of them, one about architecture and one about learning. So the first one uh, was uh, about architecture. It was at the time when malls were becoming important. And I noticed a couple of areas uh, near where I lived where they demolished a lot of lively houses, small houses with front porches, a lot of people hanging out, many of them low income, but, and they they started to build malls with vast parking lots, big citadel-like structures with no windows. And it seemed to me that this was a kind of architectural horror. <laughs> it was destroying the views to the outside, but it was also uh, destroying community. And that was uh, not long after Jane Jacobs wrote that fabulous wow. book in 1963, The yeah. Death and Life of the Great American Cities. Right. And I thought, architecture is powerful and it has an impact on community. Now, another experience I had is I was very interested in art, but I found that in art class, it was technical and conventional and it it didn't give me a sense of student agency. So I took a uh, life drawing class at a community art center and we, well, we drew nude models and that was, that was amazing for a a 15 year old boy, (laughs) but um, I was then able to have an exhibit of artwork, um, and we we had it in the school library, which was a shocking thing, but our art teacher advocated for that. This was fine art, and it completely changed my connection to my peers because of something that I learned that I brought in from outside of school, and so it, it, it gave me this sense that student agency and connecting to learning outside. So we were just talking about Albert Marley, how... Right. 
they're looking at schools not being as a building, but that learning and school is happening everywhere. So for me, it was happening outside school even more than in school. You now focus your architectural practice on schools. So how, how did you come to that conclusion? Was that conscious or the result of a few projects that turned into a career? Tom, it was solving a problem. And that, that problem really was defined on the first day of kindergarten when I was five. I, I had been used to spending a lot of time wandering around uh, by the harbor, around lots of dogs and cats outside and trees. And I get into school and I'm told to sit down and look straight ahead. And I can only go outside for a short period of time. I'm even told when to take a nap. I thought it was crazy. I thought it was prison. And so, Right then, I knew that there was something wrong with school for me. And uh, so that's, that's set that problem of I want to do something about, uh, about learning, about education. And then as far as being an architect, I just love to build things. The first thing I, I built where I would take, when I was four, cardboard boxes and, and uh, paint them and turn them into dinosaurs. <laughs> and uh, I, I've never lost that love, uh, the, the joy of building something. Is amazing. So it's my tool for changing. What I want to do, I've wanted to do, is uh, change learning around the world my whole life, so that students would have more agency and also the ability to to uh, to be outside more. Which reminds me, your session this morning where you quoted poetry by William Stafford, right, poet laureate in Oregon, was so inspiring to me. And I want to share a poem with you, but first, can you say something a little bit how you came to know uh, this poet and what made you think of, of including that in a session? Well, I, I found poetry when I was a school superintendent. Um, I kept a journal. Uh, it was one of the few things that kept me sane doing really, really difficult, confusing work. And, and I found uh, that reading prose just was um, felt so shallow um, and that very frequently was a, a poem that would more closely speak to the really complicated um, experiences that I was having as a superintendent you know as a as a school or system leader you have arguably the, the best and the worst job on the planet simultaneously. It's really difficult and it's really complicated and it's extraordinarily rewarding all simultaneously. And, uh, and I just found that uh, poetry better captured that for me. So it was really in the 90s that I started building um, a pretty big collection of, of poetry. And I found as, uh, as we were both getting ready to join these schools from all over the the world that I, I wanted to try to begin and end with uh, with a few thoughts about the sense of mission and calling that bring educators to work. And I wanted to try to end with a, a call to action, um, a, you know, go out and charge. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And Bill Stafford is just so great on on both of those points. And his son, Kim Stafford, also a poet, wrote a beautiful memoir, uh, biography, and reflection about his dad's life a few years after he died. So it's called Early Mornings, and mm. it's, uh, it's, worth, uh, it's worth a read. But I can't wait to read it. Poetry's been uh, important to me for, for now 30 years for those reasons.
So, so what's your poetry story? So this story, uh, well, it, it goes to uh, that journey about learning. School wasn't working so well for me, but reading was magical. And so I was, uh, I was not such a, uh, a very old student when I, I read Kipling. And, and he wrote that there was never a king like Solomon, not since the world has begun, since Solomon would speak to a butterfly as a man would speak to a man. And that really struck me. Uh, I think it's because I had grown up around uh, a lot of dogs and cats <laughs> and nature. And so to me, being outside and, and uh, connecting to nature was, that was a lot of what life was. I'd wake up in the morning, I'd have some breakfast and I'd go out and uh, all seasons. And so when I read that poem, it, it gave voice to this idea that being able to connect with animals uh, and nature is just as important as anything else in the world. So it has been a driver in design work uh, my whole life that our, our buildings really connect to the outside, that when you look up, you look out and you look towards something. And if there isn't, uh, uh, if there are not trees out there or mountains, then we try and create a, uh, a sense of, of connectivity yeah. or something that's outside so just a building. You know, I've known you for a day and I've already noticed about you that you you don't do well being cooped up in a windowless place for long and you're uh, I've noticed that you're out looking looking out and about um, let's talk about vistas for a minute I've noticed that the school buildings that I like often have a, a vista from many different locations where there's a sight line through a wall of glass to a space beyond mm. Is that important for there's, human beings? Tom, there's a research basis to that, and it has to do with eye health. And that is that our eyes, uh, we need to change our focal length. Or if you stay, it's a bit like uh, if you were to uh, stay on <laughs> old-fashioned records, if you were to keep the needle on that record too long, you, yeah. you'd burn out that record. Well, your eye yeah. can't stay at a fixed focal length for too long. It's not good for, you know, staring yeah. at a screen is the worst thing. So we will naturally look up and change our focal length by looking at something at least 50 feet or 15 meters away. Mm. So you could be in a room full of people and unconsciously you'll notice that they're looking up and they're looking out. It's so Randy, do. what's your, do you, do you have a favorite school building vista memory? Mm. One of the many buildings that you've designed, is there a, <laughs> a spot that you really enjoy? Yeah, I, I, I'd say the, uh, a, a new favorite, and there's so many, that's really right, a Tom, right. Tom, it's a little bit like saying, what's your favorite your child? Children, right. <laughs> so, but, uh, we, uh, recently opened up a school a year ago, Strathcona Tweedsmere School in Okotoks, uh, Canada, uh, that's in Alberta. It's just south of Calgary and it's in the foothills. And, uh, from the beginning in our visioning, we talked about what was most important to people. And by the way, it's an IB school. So PYP, right. primary years, uh, middle years, MYP and diploma. Uh, so there's an international mindedness, but also everyone felt that this views out was so important to right. the forest or, or to the mountains. And so when we designed the school, that was a key generator. And when I mm -hmm. went there uh, for the opening uh, last, uh, it was last February, and uh, people said to me that uh, the school worked very well, they were happy, but one of the things they noticed on day one was an increased sense of well-being. And it was this just 
looking out all the time. Yeah. My favorite is uh, uh, <clears throat> Design 39 in uh, Poway, uh, just north of San Diego. Mm. Spectacular, recent building. Almost every classroom has a, a view across the valley to the mm. mountains. Uh, it's a oh. place that obviously was designed not only with um, beautiful interior spaces in mind, but with with vistas in mind. So I'm glad to learn that that's important. Randy, I'd love uh, uh, kind of a summary of how you think about designing learning spaces. What principles are, are most important to, to you and your work? Number one is listening. It's, it's really understanding uh, who people are, who, who's going to use the school and what's important to them. And a school is very much connected to place and to community. And so as I was uh, sharing with, uh, with a group yesterday, one of my favorite schools, Hip Hop High, or High School for Recording Arts in St. Paul, it's one of my favorite schools. And I think, I think we heard them, we did their first project for them. It was not in the building they're in now. It was a low cost renovation of a warehouse space. And for me, it was so difficult because there were no windows in this space, but right. and there were a lot of columns, but they needed a place where kids could be creative and collaborate and have agency. And what was exciting to me was to get to know those kids. And the first day I asked them what was important and they said hip hop. And I said, well, will you pose for a picture? Kids jumped on a table. Mm. Uh, they, they just really loved to perform. Yeah. They were. And so that space uh, had these, these uh, it had a stage in it, a portable stage uh, with, with some uh, lighting in it so that they could really perform there. And then it had glass over do had doors to separate it from where their individual workstations were. And listening to them too, well, we understand they really had tiny, tiny budget. So we're able to find a, uh, there was a building uh, downtown Minneapolis where they were getting rid of their workstations. We used those old desks and we had an artist in the building create the workstations that have corrugated metal because uh, T.C. Ellis, the founder, likes edgy things and so do those kids. So you had this corrugated steel, these kind of heavy desks, these uh, overhead garage doors and a stage. And we use those principles of longer vistas even without having um, a um, out having a view to nature. So, uh, for example, one end of the space behind the workstations, we painted it a kind of orange, and then I had these cheap track lights lighting it up. Mm -hmm. So it was much higher foot candles. And we took posters of David Ellis from his days with Prince, and we put them on that wall large. So when you were 200 feet away, you'd look up and your eye would be drawn uh, to something dramatic, not mountains, but... and. Uh, that was a cheap, fast space, but we've never done a more wonderful space. And I, I felt that that process of listening to the kids, listening and, and in a way playing, becoming friends with their leader, uh, with leadership and, and incorporating those key design principles uh, was, was a good process. Yeah. I, I remember uh, Larry Rosenstock um, telling me in a, in a gutted warehouse in 1999 that he felt that height, light, and exposed structure were important and that he was going to try to retain as much of that in this mm. old warehouse as he could. So when, are, I guess, are and when those variables important in, in your work? 
So ceiling height is always important and variety is a key principle uh, that we see. So you want different ceiling heights. You, you want those high, high ceilings, which actually are correlated with more conceptual thinking. Your, right. your mind looks up, your hands reach up and, and there's that sense of buzz and collaboration and stimulation. But then you also want these lower ceilings, uh, which are associated more with focus that it can be focus on a, on a test, but also quieter spaces, more nest like. And we need those different spaces at different ages, uh, and different levels of confidence personally. And also different times of the day. So you might want the high ceiling buzz. It could, for me, I like that at about, uh, you know, 10 or 11 in the morning. And then at about one in the afternoon, I like a quieter space. So I I noticed uh, this in Albemarle County, Mm -hmm. Virginia, uh, some beautiful spaces that I think you had something to do with. Well, we've been involved in master planning there, and our I think our most significant contribution was in helping... Uh, helping the district and uh, and your colleague Pam Moran and, and envision high schools as a kind of hub connected to a community network, as opposed to school being in a building. Uh, or like I talked about earlier, that shopping center citadel. It's not an object. It's part of a network of spaces, and so there. Uh, a lot of what we did, uh, we're architects and planners, and we're very involved in visioning and listening and community connections. How do we connect the space? What What are the needs for high school spaces? Uh, and how, how can we leverage other spaces in the community? The the Canadian space that you mentioned uh, will include the that beautiful video that you showed mm, oh, yeah, yesterday. Oh, yeah, that'd be super um, to uh, share that, that link. That video featured flexible spaces mm-hmm. where you could go from large to small, mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. seminar to team to mm-hmm. individual. So it feels like that's becoming more and more important. It is. And most of our schools will organize around what we call learning community concept. And people sometimes in the past called them pods, although somehow that pod thing sounds to me like a Martian thing. <laughs> yeah. But a learning community, it really is. We do learn in community. We we learn so much connecting to each other, as I was learning uh, from you this morning when you were sharing poems of Bill Stafford. The These learning communities will typically uh, involve three, four, five teachers and somewhere between 90 and 150 students. And so that video that you saw um, on uh, Strathcona Tweedsmere school, which was an animation we did prior to building the building, it showed these uh, many different learning communities. Some of our uh, schools will have uh, 10 learning communities. They'll, you know, they're, they're large, like Singapore American School, many more even that you saw, 4,000 students. The idea is it's not how big the school is, it's how big is that area where you connect with people. You want to connect with a group that is, uh, in a way, if you look at the research that Robin Dunbar uh, has done on how big a group can you connect with, for adults, it's about a maximum of 150. And we find for an elementary school, sometimes 75, 90 is a good number. Um, I've been accused of, of being a leading advocate of small schools for uh, for that reason, that it's just, you know, in a group of four or 500 people, you can know everybody's name and develop a sense of community. And I think we've learned since then, you can, you can connect a, a couple of those in a, into a larger progression, but, uh, but there is something special about a, about a small community. 
Uh, let's talk about Singapore. I, I, I mentioned to you that uh, on my last visit to Singapore mm -hmm. American School, I was really blown away. They, mm -hmm. There's these Pathfinder spaces that are kind of an active learning. It's kind of a research and development project that is allowing that school community to learn about these new flexible learning spaces mm -hmm. and to sort of experiment with them mm -hmm. in real time. Um, where did this idea of Pathfinder spaces come from and how do you see communities using them? So Pathfinder spaces or pilot programs um, have come up They've become a, uh, a common practice for us at uh, F&I in the last decade. And one of the reasons was that we were solving a problem. We would often do visioning for a school, and it might take a year or two to get funding and a year or two to get approvals and go into design. And so the building might be built four years after we did visioning with a community. And you'd find that many of the people involved in the visioning had moved on. And so we'd open up a building and people would be sometimes confused about why did you design it that way? And they wouldn't necessarily know how or have the appetite to use those spaces that we talked about. We talked about uh, spaces that might be collaborative, that also might encourage student agency. And uh, then you might have teachers who are saying, well, where's my classroom? <laughs> and our spaces do have learning studios and learning suites and 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 labs uh, and common areas, but um, they're not necessarily, it's not that bells and cells model. Uh, that is, uh, you know, cells where you occupy a classroom-like cell and then you hear a bell and then you right. move to the next cell. So what ha what we found is that by doing Pathfinder projects, you could early on, let's say we do visioning with a community in September and October, by winter we can be developing a Pathfinder project, which could actually be done as a very low-cost renovation the following summer. And that low-cost renovation could allow a group of early adapter teachers and students to start model what what that new space might look like. And then uh, other teachers and parents and students can come see that in September and they'll get it. It'll make sense. And that begins to create a culture that's sustainable. And what we find when we do this, uh, so you'll have seen that, uh, for example, with our work in uh, Chappaqua, New York at Horace uh, Greeley uh, High School, that was led by our FNI principal, uh, Jay Lippman. You, you could see we did one uh, learning community model. We renovated a portion and then another the next year and then another the next year. Mm. Same thing at Singapore American School, uh, led by uh, FNI partner Isaac Williams, who you had a chance to meet. Uh, doing a pilot project is the, one of the best forms of professional development. I, I, I loved how the Singapore team was using it not only to learn and experiment with, with space, it, it even it came down to how which classes should be connected mm -hmm. and as a result what kind of wall system should exist between science and math how mm -hmm. often is that going to be open mm -hmm. should it be movable um, mm -hmm. or fixed and so really struggling with what's the nature of learning going to be like in the future what's going to be connected um, how big to big flexible spaces need to be how often will uh, students be in small spaces are really um, wrestling with not only space but also uh, pedagogy uh, and equipment. So just a, a beautiful 
active learning project. Uh, so love that. Glad to hear that more people are, are doing that. Um, another thing that we've seen in the last 18 months uh, is a change in seating. Um, a lot more variety in terms of seating options for students. Is that a it's something so, that's been part of your work? It's so important. It has always been. And uh, our core principle we've had is that the building, the architecture, the site, and the landscape, and the furnishings are all equally important. And you want it to be a seamless connection. Um, and students and teachers are going to actually experience those furnishings in some ways more often than uh, other parts of the right. building. So it's absolutely uh, critical. And uh, Teachers for, really get this, you know, right away that some kids want high, some kids want low, some kids want hard, some want soft. And just having a little bit of variety in your class and letting students learn where and how they want, just that little bit of voice and choice in, in terms of your physical well-being is so important for some students. It makes a huge difference. The whole principle of variety, variety in the space and the design and the furnishings is a, a core thing to understand. Variety, and you were talking about agility earlier, it's not the same thing as flexibility. Quite a few uh, clients will come to us and say, what we want is flexible space, flexible space, and see flexibility as the kind of holy grail. Right. But if you think about it, when you're totally flexible, it also is sterile and soulless. So what you want is a balance of, of real anchored spaces. You want a sense of heart and uni uniqueness and uh, a solidity. You want solid walls and glass vistas. You want openings to the outside, openings from one space to another. And you want distinct spaces, varied spaces. And the same thing with furnishings. You don't want all one kind of thing. So there is a place for tables and chairs, and then there's a place for higher tables and chairs. And then there's a place for uh, stools that wiggle or ottomans that wiggle. And the, when do you need those? It might depend on the time of day. Right. Also, it's gender-based. So you'll find um, research will show from early days, the first couple of weeks of life, that um, girl babies will focus on a face talking before they will something moving uh, on the ground, whereas typical male babies will focus on, let's say, a spider or a, tra a truck moving on the floor, even if it's black and white. They're not as sensitive to color, to voice, to face. And so that uh, those, those roots of how we learn, uh, you know, some of them are uh, nature. They're not all nurture. And that plays into furnishing. So the wiggly stools, for example, might yeah. be more important to young boys than they are to girls. Now, for, for some girls, they're, they're also a fantastic and uh, wonderful thing. Randy, I want to close uh, by talking about student agency. Mm -hmm. you, you had some beautiful thoughts earlier today. Why has that idea become important to you? So I would say it's not about me, Tom, <laughs> but I think it's about uh, our future as a culture. Uh, there's now uh, lots of discussions, particularly in Silicon Valley, about the potential for an emerging useless class. Scary. That is a, a class of people who don't have jobs because artificial intelligence, algorithms, robots are replacing our ability to work. So if you think about that as a frightening thing, you can also frame it as a problem that we solve. And in education and educational architecture, 
I think a key solution is to create environments, uh, educational environments and curriculum and pedagogy, a framework for students to become self-navigators, to be self-directed, to have student agency. Because if we do, as human beings, if we have that kind of ability to self-navigate, we're not going to become useless. And, and along with that, it's not only becoming uh, self-directed as learners, which allows us to innovate, uh, but also um, to be focused on relationships. Uh, I think that is the other thing in, in addition to, and it relates to agency in a very traditional bells and cells school. The relationship is teacher at the front, students in rows. It's this sort of one to many, and you don't have much agency in who you connect with. I can't turn to you and talk to you about your ideas in the middle of a class, right? In a traditional one. So this ability to foster relationships and the ability to self-navigate, in fact, I, I see those two principles as a solution uh, to to the age coming ahead to for us to be successful as human beings. Randy Fielding, well, uh, thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. It was great to chat with you. It was such a pleasure, Tom. You were a, a really good interviewer. <laughs> a big thanks to Randy for joining us on the podcast today. We appreciate his insights on developing learning environments for the future. And for more on Learning Spaces, be sure to check out episode 163, where we talked with Pam Moran about her book, Listening to Kids and Designing from Scratch for Timeless Learning. Don't worry about grabbing a pen. We've included links in the show notes and on the blog. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on any future content. And for all things innovations and learning, you can head over to our blog at gettingsmart.com. All right, that's it for today, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.